You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, fishermen, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, authors, and filmmakers, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening area on the West Marin Coast are the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which together protect 4,581 square miles of rocky shorelines, sandy seafloors, rocky banks, and deep-sea canyons and maritime artifacts. So often we hear of declining ecosystems and failing management schemes in the news, but have no fear, today we have a success story to talk about. If you live along the coast or around San Francisco Bay and glance out in the water, you're very likely to see a small dorsal fin quickly surface and disappear. It could very likely be a harbor porpoise. Harbor porpoise have historically been in our region for centuries, but in the 1950s and 60s appeared to disappear. In the early 2000s, they started to appear again, and with careful study, we are learning more about this species in this region than ever before, thanks to my guests today. To capture this story, filmmakers Jim Sugar and editor Jessica Sizon created a film, Return of the Harbor Porpoise, which is showing at the San Francisco Ocean Film Festival this Saturday and has won the 2018 Citizen Science Award. So I'm thrilled to welcome... Bill Keener, a biologist with the Golden Gate Cetacean Society, and filmmaker Jim Sugar and editor Jessica Sizon to KWMR. Welcome, everybody, to Ocean Currents. Oh, thanks. Thanks, thanks, thanks for having us. us. Thank you. This is wonderful. I have been wanting to talk about this story for a while because I've heard about the return of the harbor porpoise. And, Bill, I've seen you talk about this at some of the research symposiums. And when I heard about the film, it kind of all came together at a great time to talk about this since the film is going to be showing on Saturday. But I really want to start with the natural history because these little porpoises are so cute and they are cetaceans. So they are in the whale and dolphin family. And I believe they may hold the record for the smallest cetacean. Bill, is that accurate? Well, the the porpoises are the smallest cetacean. So there's uh, the harbor porpoise along our coast. And then there's the vaquita, which is the very endangered species in the um, Sea of Cortez in Baja, California. And they're the two smallest. They're only about maybe five feet long, 150 pounds. So they're pretty small. And what is the typical range for harbor porpoise in terms of where in the Pacific? Well, in the Pacific, uh, we're more or less getting down towards their southern edge. They like cold water. So they'll go down as far as Morro Bay, uh, but then they go far north up to Alaska and across all the way down into Japan. So they love the, the cold coastal waters of the North Pacific. 
Nice. They are typically hugging the coastline. Is that my understanding? How far off the coast could somebody see a harbor porpoise? You know, they they generally are are just the first few miles, but you can see them out uh, along the shelf. So people have seen them from the Farallons before. Really? Um, Yeah. And I've certainly I've seen them at Cordell Bank uh, out, uh, you know, on the bank. Um, so they're, they get out a little ways, but they are not deep ocean animals, so they don't go out beyond the shelf. Do you think they go out that far because of the tidal influence of San Francisco Bay? or No, I think just it's just, they're the just looking food. Yeah, it's just all about the food. And, you know, anywhere that there's a good place where there's uh, f- small schooling fish because that's what they eat, they'll eat squid as well, but mainly small schooling fish like anchovy or herring. Uh, those kinds of uh, fish. Now, that's a similar diet, I believe, to some dolphin species as well. Can you explain the difference to listeners of what a, between a dolphin and a porpoise? Yeah, they're yeah. similar, but a little different. They are a little different. Um, and, you know, what's funny is in the old days, meaning when I started <laughs> looking uh, at, the, at these animals in the 1970s, there was actually... Um, not much of a distinction that is scientists would call them porpoises or dolphins um, sort of alternatively. But uh, then uh, what happened is that they started distinguishing between the two. And the the the, the reason they, there was confusion in the beginning because the word dolphin is just the Greek word for the animal, whereas porpoise is the Latin word. So it's porcus piscus, pigfish. So the the words sort of got confused for a while, but now scientists have separated them. And you've got dolphins are the warm water, some more temperate and warm water animals that go uh, way out into the ocean, and they're, they're further, most of them, many of them are further south. Whereas porpoises are about a half dozen species of cold water nearshore uh, animals. And there are anatomical differences. They've been separated by some millions of years of evolution. They have different teeth, they have a different uh, sort of skeleton, a little bit smaller brained in the. Um, the porpoises than the uh, larger-brained uh, dolphins. Do porpoises echolocate? They uh, yes, all toothed uh, cetaceans, meaning the sperm whale plus all the dolphins and all the porpoises, all echolocate. They they live a very acoustic life underwater. They're uh, sending out little signals uh, above human hearing, really high frequency bounces off their fish or their prey or they're communicating and then they they listen um, to to the echoes coming off so that they're just like bats do the same kind of thing so I have a little sound file of um, harbor porpoise that I understand was sped up so we could hear it because their frequency is so fast we wouldn't be able to hear so it, it was slowed down so we oh, can it slowed hear it. down yeah, yeah okay oh that's right the blue whales we have to speed up the harbor porpoises we have to slow down Big, big difference in their morphology. Okay, let's take a listen to this. So lots of little clicks in there. Did you hear that? Little, little clicks in the background with a lot of extra, extra noise in there. Some other fish and shrimp and 
stuff moving around. So those high-pitched signals are how they find their prey. Can they also stun their prey with echolocation? Well, they don't think that probably these porpoises can. Um, there's some theory that the big, giant, you know, 50-foot sperm whales can do that, and they sort of like a, a, a focused uh, sound wave can be so strong that it can actually um, stun prey just enough to make them slow down for a second so that they, the, uh, the whale can catch up with them. So with porpoises, that's probably not going on. Um, we can see them uh, feeding from uh, locally from the Golden Gate Bridge, and I've certainly never seen seen that kind of action. I've seen them go up to the fish and try to grab it just like you would expect to see them do, but I don't really see anything in the way of uh, doing any kind of acoustic stunning. It's amazing the, how they do that with their little, with their brains. I wish we could do that. Laser yeah. beam. <laughs> see underwater. It would be great. That's cool. So... Tell, tell us a little bit about the history in terms of they were here historically and then they disappeared for a while. So so in talking about San Francisco Bay, um, which is really where we're studying them, and the reason we're studying them there is because we have one of the most amazing platforms in the world, which is the Golden Gate Bridge. So when I uh, started studying marine mammals uh, back in the 1970s, there were no cetaceans in San Francisco Bay regularly. I mean, there was no dolphins, no porpoises, no whales, and that's all changed uh, in uh, re- recently, over the last 10 years or so. And um, the first animal we noticed it with was the harbor porpoise. So in uh, 2008, after not seeing porpoises, we actually looked for porpoises. We actually did um, studies. One of the first uh, things that I did um, in, the, in the 1980s was when the um, Gulf of the Fairlands National Marine Sanctuary was being set up, they wanted to have a baseline survey of, well, what animals are in the sanctuary area. And so we would go out on boats for a three-year period to do transects and figure out what species are there. And one of the things we studied was harbor porpoises. And we started looking in San Francisco Bay, and we'd go out into the Gulf of the Farallons, and we counted over three years exactly zero in San Francisco Bay. So we were looking for them. Hmm. Um, But that all changed around 2008. And um, John Stern, who uh, recently uh, passed away, one of our... Uh, close associates and friends, a Ph.D. and a professor of biology at uh, San Francisco State, um, was doing minke whale research off the coast here. And he came back one day, really excited, called me up and said, hey, I saw some harbor porpoises in San Francisco Bay. Uh, there was a mother and a calf. And I thought, no, that's not, not likely. And so I ran down the next day. Uh, to look uh, from Cavallo Point, and sure enough, there were harbor porpoises going by, and I was stunned. So here it happened in our lifetime that we got to see cetaceans in the bay, and then we started looking, and they were here every day, and they had suddenly rediscovered San Francisco Bay. Now, we know they were here historically because when you look at the Indian middens, that were the Native Americans had left, had built over thousands of years along the shores, like at Emeryville. Mm-hmm. There's small numbers of harbor porpoise bones in there. So we know they were in the bay. We also know from a professor um, at Berkeley in the 30s, he would go fishing at Richmond, and he would record every time he saw harbor porpoises, and they were frequent, basically almost every time he went fishing. So we know they were in the bay until the 30s. And we think one of the uh, real things that happened to make them abandon the bay was World War II. 
when they put up a submarine net all across the bay from San Francisco to Sausalito, that would have prevented them from moving in and out of the bay. And then after that, in the 50s and 60s, I mean, it was a real time of pollution in the bay. I remember as a, as a kid in the 50s uh, driving over the Bay Bridge, and it would stink like sewage because there was unchecked sewage and industrial pollution running into the bay. That's all changed. I mean, it's after the Clean Water Act and all the, the grassroots efforts by folks like Save the Bay and others, it's really made a huge positive change for San Francisco Bay. And as a result of cleaning up, we've got our um, cetaceans back. It's such an incredible story that we can see in a lifetime, the changes that can happen when we clean things up a little bit or clean things up a lot in terms of changing how we discharge into the water and preventing and slowing down pollution and eliminating those impacts. Now, it, I would assume they would also need prey to attract them to this area. So were prey potentially also not around at the time when they were facing these other threats? That's, or? One, that's one of the, the, the hypotheses that we think, you know, happened in the past is that the fish numbers were knocked down uh, by the, the uh, pollution. And so having a cleaner bay starts the food chain, you know, from the bottom, and you come up to the fish, and the small schooling fish like herring and anchovy, jack smelt, and others uh, are prevalent in the bay now. And so, uh, yeah, that definitely makes the difference. I think it's really all about the food for the porpoises. That's wonderful. For folks tuning in, this is Ocean Currents here, and I have three guests in the studio, Bill Keener from Golden Gate Cetacean Research and filmmakers Jim Sugar and Jessica Sizon, who we'll, we'll move into in a little bit to hear about this film that really covers this beautiful story of resilience and recovery in San Francisco Bay. And to have a, a big marine mammal return uh, really gives us an, a, a piece of the puzzle of how we've cleaned up the bay. And when we have mammals return like this, it's pretty exciting. Now, is there any association with the return of river otters that we've seen? We've seen some great new sightings and areas where river otters have started to appear again. And is there any association at all with maybe the prey situation? You, you know, I think it's part of the same basic uh, thing that the, that the bay uh, is getting cleaner. And so you're having animals that can move into areas, and, you know, the otters are feeding on fish, too. The river otter ecology uh, folks do a fantastic job of, you know, finding these new areas where they're moving out from, uh, say, northern areas in the bay, and now they're, they're moving throughout. And, uh, yeah, I think that, that having that opportunity for these animals to have, in particular, this case, fish, uh, makes the difference for porpoises and dolphins and humpback whales now, as well as the river otter. Yeah, I want to talk about that in a little bit. So reading up a little bit uh, prior, reading in the Field Guide to Marine Mammals of the Pacific Coast, um, very little is known about their life history. So your work is really instrumental right now in helping to understand what they're all about. We have, You said you have a great platform off the Golden Gate Bridge. Can you just talk a little bit about how your work is focusing on understanding the harbor porpoise? Right. So harbor porpoises, you know, have been, uh, because they're common uh, along coasts uh, in Europe and here uh, and the east coast of the United States, they, they've certainly been studied in terms of if they've been uh, stranded or killed or trapped in a net, a fishing net or something like that, and drowned. You can study the basic biology, but you don't get an idea of what their, their life 
like in real life. And so it's really important to understand uh, what animals are, are like in the wild. And when we would go out in boats into the um, Gulf of the Fairlands in the 80s, we tried to look at their, uh, their life history and sort of what they were doing and their social uh, structure and stuff. Couldn't do it because when you approach in a boat, they change their behavior. They scatter. They run away from you. But from the Golden Gate Bridge, you can look down 220 feet, and you can see them every day coming underneath the bridge, and you get to see the mothers with the calves. You get to see them trying to mate. Uh, you get to see them uh, chasing after fish. So for the first time, we've got a real window into their uh, natural behavior. That's a great I, – I, just the whole idea of the bridge serving as a research platform is wonderful, and you don't have to pay for it. Don't have to pay for it, but uh, <laughs> there are – I mean, it's one of the, the foggiest, windiest places in the world. So yeah. there's many days where we can't see anything down below us in the foggy summer uh, months. But uh, most of the year, it's, it's fantastic. Um, you get to know the uh, – the, the, uh, patrols uh, from the Golden Gate Bridge Patrol guys there, and they're really friendly and, 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 and great people out there and stuff. And uh, it's really an interesting environment because you always have uh, people, tourists, coming by. So I've learned how to say porpoise in like 10 languages because they're always asking me, what are those? Are they sharks? And I have to explain, no, they're not. They're mammals down there. That's exciting. So what are some of the other things you've seen in the water? Focus on the water. <laughs> I, I can imagine there's many things to see on the bridge, but um, any other natural history sightings yeah. that are really unique? Yeah. So uh, you, every day you can also see harbor seals. You get to see California sea lions. On a rare occasion, you might get to see um, a stellar sea lion maybe a couple times a year, and pretty rarely uh, elephant seals will go into the bridge. Now, uh, the interesting thing is, too, you get to see sea lions feeding, and I've seen stellar sea lions bring up five-foot rays, five-foot-long rays. I've seen uh, thresher sharks being uh, tossed around by California sea lions. So you get to see some stuff. And then in addition, there's all the bird life. Yeah. Because you've got all the gulls and the cormorants and the grebes uh, that are sort of going crazy because uh, they love all that feeding activity because they get the scraps. So the first thing I do when I walk on the bridge is I look for the birds because they know what's happening. They know where the porpoises are. Absolutely. Actually, that's some of the video footage that I've seen. It's mostly birds that you see that are doing feeding as well, and the harbor porpoises are going crazy as well. Exactly. Wonderful. The Golden Gate Bridge is a wildlife viewing platform. Where are some other points in the bay people might be able to see harbor porpoises? I have seen them at a couple beaches on the ocean side. Right. Um, and how would you describe a seeing one in terms of the difference between that and a dolphin sure. if you're see looking on the water. Sure. So, yeah, along the, the Marin Coast, certainly, um, I Drake, like Drake's Beach and stuff, uh, Lemon Tour, you know, you can the water gets pretty calm in there sometimes, and so you can see um, porpoises come up. But you can also see bottlenose dolphins, so you do have to sort of distinguish between the two. So the harbor porpoises are pretty small, and they've got a very short one- to two-second surface roll, as we call it, as the back comes up, you see a triangular dorsal fin, it's dark, and then it goes away. It's just a very short. Dolphins will be up at the surface a couple, three seconds, but they have a much taller, swept-back, curved dorsal fin. And so that's really what you look for. It almost looks like a surfboard fin upside down. It is, exactly like a, a skeg, yeah. 
And then in the bay, the places to watch besides the Golden Gate Bridge, and if you do go to the Golden Gate Bridge, you want to go at high tide. That's the best time. So just look on your tide table and figure out a good time to go for you. And then the other uh, place is Cavallo Point, um, Fort Point in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Are, are, and so anywhere around the gate area is really good. Um, but I like going to um, Cavallo Point as, as well as the Golden Gate Bridge. That's nice. So you get the high view up on the bridge and then the low view. Exactly. That's great. Well, let's talk a little bit about how the story came to be in mind for cr- producing a film. I'd love to uh, hear from Jim and Jessica. How did you guys hear about the harbor porpoises and creating a film? I'm very good friends with another photographer named Flip Nicklin. And Flip, I've known Flip for a long time. He and I worked together at National Geographic for a really long time. And we met at Joe's Taco Lounge in Mill Valley. Good joint, good joint. <laughs> yeah. We, 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 um, we bumped into each other at Joe's. And he had John Stern there with him. And we were, after, after chatting for a few minutes with Flip and finding out what he was doing, and he had just finished a magnificent book on whales. And it, in an instant, it came to me that there was a movie about harbor porpoises. So I asked John and Flip on the spot if they would be willing to collaborate with me on a film on harbor porpoises. And it would be the working title, which became the the real title, was The Return of Harbor Porpoises to San Francisco Bay. And we just decided on the on the spot at Joe's Taco Lounge that there was a movie there. And uh, it had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And most importantly, as far as I was concerned, was that it was a good news story on the environment. So instead of hearing all these terrible stories about th- things that were going on with the environment, we had a great news story. And John was the guy who had discovered that harbor porpoises had come back into the bay. And like some of the other movie projects I've worked on, there wasn't even a deciding point. It was just it, it just happened. And we realized that we had enough material for a film. And we began work on it. And uh, Flip and Jonathan introduced me to Bill Keener, and Bill know who Bill and I live really close to each other, and so um, the the thing just fell together in a, in a big hurry. And a lot of times when you do documentary films, it's not like you even have to make a decision. The film finds you, and that's what happened here. The film found us. And um, we went to work on it. I think we went to work on it that weekend. And Bill explained to me where you go to and and what you do. And um, almost immediately, it it just – the whole thing just came together. It wasn't like we had to do – you know, fi- find some kind of research – file a research paper or anything like that. John had done the work and to, to Flip's amazement – the these harbor porpoises had come back into the bay and one of the things just just to add something to what bill just said the story of harbor porpoises in san francisco bay is a great story of the law of unintended consequences and for these three terrific women who had formed the save the bay foundation in the 60s 1960s 
their intention was clean up the water. And I think nobody expected at that point that the predators would come back. What these women were trying to do was to clean up the water and to make the place a better place to, to live and ultimately to go swimming. And uh, and so what what we ended up doing was through the law of unintended consequences to um, to make a movie. And by cleaning up the water, it changed the balance of nature in the bay. And that was a good news story. And it was never anything that was intended. It just happened. But by doing one thing, cleaning the water, something else happens. Predators come back. Well, what are the predators? The cetaceans came back. Harbor porpoises, dolphins, sharks, and um, uh, whales. And so since Bill and I have finished shooting, there has now been an influx of whales into the bay, humpback whales. And nobody thought that that was going to happen. And what Bill and I are discussing right now, we haven't made a decision, but now that we have this first film done, do we want to make a longer film? Do we want to do another one? And if we do, we want to add whales because everybody loves whales. Yeah, the whales are very captivating. <laughs> whales are fabulous. So it, in every way, it's just a good news story. So how did you bring Jessica into the film? Jessica Saison is the editor of the film, and she's here with us in the studio. Jessica, how did you meet these folks? We, we have a mutual friend, um, Kim Kamenich, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer. And I was working on his documentary about the People Power Revolution in the Philippines in 1986, which ousted the Marcos dictatorship. And so we met at a, the book release party for that documentary. And he was, and Jim was telling me about his film, and I thought, that's really fascinating. You know, I'm a San Francisco native, and that's a part of, you know, San Francisco Bay Area history that I had never heard of. You know, like as a kid, you know, I would just go to Ocean Beach, and it's not a big deal. And to think that, you know, just, you know, 20 years earlier, it was just horrible. You you know, you couldn't go to a fisherman's wharf, you'd smell the bay, you couldn't go to the, the Bay Bridge, and you'd smell the bay. I was like, I can't imagine what life would have been like at that time. So, you know, to hear about this, I really wanted to be involved. And like he said, it is a good news story. It's not another story about like, you know, the bay is dying and things are horrible. Things, you know, horrible things are happening. It's a story of like people made a difference and and something happened. It, you know, maybe it took fifty years for the the predators to come back, but it you know it happened. And so it for me, it's saying that there's hope if you make the effort to clean it up. You know, th good things will happen. Wonderful. Um, you just made me think about how important it is for film to tell these stories because they communicate what the scientists know from their observations, which is just in our brain, in the scientist community. And to bring it out so that everybody else can learn is so wonderful. So thank you for doing that. And I think we need to get this into a curriculum for our students to hear this story, especially in the Bay Area, that people can get involved and make a difference and it, it shows up in the ecosystem. So, One of Wonderful. the things about this film was that, and I've had this happen to me before, the, the film was meant to be. And the film becomes a living creature. 
It's alive. The film is alive. Just like the harbor porpoises are alive, the film is alive. And all you have to do is listen. You put your ear to the ground and you listen. And the film is alive and it tells you where it wants to go. And then you do it. So it's not like you've got to make some great big gigantic decision. All you have to do is listen. And that's what has happened with this film. And um, and Jessica is really, really good at translating this. I'm so proud of her. She's so fantastic. And she understands what it is. And she she's made many films. And in this case, we, we would listen. And we, we would get together and we would talk about it. And it would tell us what it wanted. It would tell us where we were. It would know what was next. It would know Je- Jessica on several occasions. She would she would give me a shot list, and she'd say, "Okay, you got these three things. Now here's what's missing." She was listening, and she'd say, "Here's what you need to do: go out to the bridge, and shoot these pictures because you're missing that." I didn't know that, but she knew it, and so she would give me an assignment. She'd give me a new shot list, and I'd go out and I'd do it, and then we'd put that together. And that was how the film got to be made. Yeah, I'd like to... One second. I just want to let folks know this is KWMR, Point Race Station, <clears throat> and you're listening to Ocean Currents. And we're talking right now about the film The Return of the Harbor Porpoise. Is, the, is it the film The Return of the Harbor Porpoise to San Francisco Bay? I've been saying the wrong title. The Return of the Harbor Porpoise to San Francisco Bay. And I have filmmakers Jim Sugar and Jessica Sizon here and biologist Bill Keener. And we're talking all about this wonderful success story for conservation right here in San Francisco Bay. Go ahead, Jessica. Well, I just wanted to continue what Jim was saying about getting the missing shots. Like one thing that I always saw from him was just the excitement, the that feeling of anybody can go to the Golden Gate Bridge, look down and see harbor porpoises. And he kept t- talking about that and going through all the footage there was none of that. There was, there was like, you know, scientists talking about it and, you know, scientists and photographers who knew what they were doing, looking, looking for the harbor porpoises. And so one of the things I told him was, I want to see shots of, of tourists, anybody, young, old, you know, approach them on the bridge and tell them, look down, look at what, what you can see and capture that excitement. You know, capture the excitement of these tourists who have no idea. They're just thinking, oh, how pretty. Look at this beautiful bay and the bridge and the buildings and sailboats. And then for Bill and Jim to say, look down there. Look at what you're missing and that excitement. So that's one of the things I told him to capture. That's lovely. Bill, was that happening already on your own when you were out there? People wondering, what are you doing? And asking questions? Oh, yeah. I mean, people come from uh, literally all over the world to go out on the Golden Gate Bridge. And so they're always, uh, you know, trying to see what's happening. They're always looking down. And they're seeing porpoises under there, and they ask about it. And so that's why I've, you know, learned porpoises in a bunch of languages and can talk to them about it. And uh, it's it's really great. And, of course, a lot of people are not foreign tourists. They're from all over the United States, but they don't get to be near an ocean there from the Midwest or whatever, and uh, they're pretty they're pretty thrilled to be able to see you know big mammals underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, well, that part of the story is very important to the human connection of people appreciating what's happening right below the waves. That's great. Can I say one other detail? Sure. Um, one of the things that became important was this place called. The viewpoint, which is at the northeast corner of the bridge, and there's a parking lot right there. 
And if you park your car at the northeast corner of the bridge, just past the North Tower, you can if you've got comfortable shoes on, and Jonathan became a real proponent of this, you can walk out towards the North Tower of the bridge. And if you if you have an iPhone like I've got here and you download the tide chart, you can time your visit to the time the, the tides. And so if it's a day when the wind is low, because you don't want to be there on a windy day because you can't see them. They get covered too much by the waves. And you're there basically on a clear, calm day. And you can park your car right there in that little parking area. And then it's about a five or ten minute walk. And you go down to the north tower of the bridge. And there's a cutout area on the bridge. And you stand next to that tower in the lee of the the wind because the wind's almost always coming from the west. And then you look down, and you can see the tide lines. Mm. I'm making the motion here on the radio. You can see the tide lines, and the fish, the harbor porpoises, swim in those tide lines. And so if you, if you pay attention to what the conditions are, and then you go out onto the bridge at those times, your chance of seeing a harbor porpoise is fantastic. And the joke that we've made is that it's like going on safari in the Serengeti, but you don't have to. I mean, it's as good as going to see elephants or tigers or or lions. But here we're looking at harbor porpoises, and and it's free. This is a free trip, and and all you got to do is look down. And once you understand, and Bill was fantastic with this. He would point out harbor porpoises to me, so I would know what to look for. And once I knew what it was and what to look for, they were there. And, um, and, and and it happened over and over again. So, Jim, your background is a photographer. You worked with National Geographic for many years, and you're dabbling in film now. And when we talked last week, you said you always wanted to win an award, be an award-winning filmmaker, and you are now. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. As of over the weekend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the film, The Return of the Harbor Porpoise to San Francisco Bay, won the Citizen Science Award for the San Francisco International Ocean Film Festival, which is coming up next Saturday. Uh, well, it starts Thursday, but the film is showing Saturday. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the day and the session that your film will be showing at? The, the session is Saturday morning, March the 10th, and it starts at 10 a.m. And I think there are five or six films in that session and ours is, I believe, will be the last one that day. So it'll probably be around 11.30 or 12 o'clock. I don't know the exact time. And we've already been informed that uh, this year, and I know they did a It's a fantastic film festival. I, I went to it last year, and it was my wife and I went to it. My wife Jan and I went to it on Saturday, and we had such a great time that we went back again on Sunday. It was yeah. just terrific. So I'm thrilled to be showing a film there this year and they're going to bring all the filmmakers up on stage at the end to talk about the film and um, it's a great thing because a filmmaker can or a photographer can give you an insight into what the problems were and what they were trying to do and what they were looking for and to be able to see the film on a giant screen big silver screen 
and you know the Oscars were last night, the Academy Awards, to be able to see the film on a giant screen and then to have the filmmaker come up out of the audience and talk about this thing, but in a more to give you more insight into it than than were at the Academy Awards last night. That that I think it's a real treat, and um, uh, we will talk about the film afterwards. David McGuire, who who is a the director of an organization called Shark Stewards, he's already told us in no uncertain terms to be prepared to go up there and talk about how you made the film, Wonderful. which we will be glad to do. That's so great. Bill and Jessica and I will be there next Saturday, and um, it's a kick. It's just a real treat. <laughs> That's great. Jessica, is this the first film you've done that is a local story of San Francisco? No, um, I've worked with other um, filmmakers. Um, one filmmaker is um, Elizabeth Schur, and we did a film We about three years ago. It won the Audience Award at the Mill Valley Film Festival, and it was about this local woman who was a you know, pioneering lesbian you know, civil rights attorney from the Bay Area. She was in Alameda County. So that's one example. Um, and then I did another environmental-themed documentary with her. She's the director. I was, I was her editor, her longtime editor. And she did a film called The Rejuvenation of Big Daddies, where a woman, um, she turned this abandoned, you know, old, you know, run-down former auto repair building and lot into a community garden in Emeryville. So there's two. Those are two examples, and then I guess another one. The one that I guess is I'm proudest of. It's also international in Bay Area. Um, I made a documentary about my grandmother um, called "My Mother Said," and in her language, it was called "Kunani Nanang," and it was my 100th birthday gift to her. Oh, and I just basically asked her about her life, and she just told me stories that I had never heard about, and just what it was like, you know, moving to the United States, leaving her country, and also leaving her her mother, not realizing that this was going to be the last time she'd ever see her, because she came here to the United States because I was born, and my mother needed help. So that's the film that I'm the proudest of, and it's been to a few film festivals, including Tribeca and Slamdance. Um, but yeah, like I, for me, like you know, I love making films and working with filmmakers who are local um, to work on you know local stories, but also international stories. You know, things that you know would affect us as well, or at least touch us as well. Wonderful! This is so wonderful to hear about the diversity of your work. And do you look at the bay differently now after you've gotten an intimate look at it with uh, the Harbor Porpoise film? I do. Actually, I'm relieved, you know, just hearing about the way that it used to be where the three women from Save the Bay, apparently one motivation for them was they would just walk out the door of their houses in the East Bay and smell the bay. And their houses were not waterfront. They were far enough away. They could see the bay, but they weren't living right there. And, you know, I'm just so grateful, you know, that it's not that way anymore. And I'm grateful for their work. And, you know, and it makes me look at the um, the seals that were at Pier 39. It makes me look at them a little bit differently now and look at the bridge differently, you know, that it's not just this, like, beautiful thing that's bridging Marin and San Francisco. It's a way to, that anybody can study, you know, cetaceans and other predators that are coming into and out of the bay. 
Do you tell all your friends to go look for Harbor Porpoise now? I do. And I remember to tell them, like, oh, I, may, I worked on this film. And, you know, if you're ever up there, you take your relatives who are visiting, you know, you know, look, you know, when it's high tide and when it's a clear day and it's not windy, go ahead and have a look if you're willing to make the hike out there. Lovely. Bill, you were mentioning about the humpback whales. And so they've they've started to come back into the bay and it seems like it's tidally influenced as well. Tell us a little bit about what's going on and what you're seeing. Yeah, I mean, that that was a real surprise to us because that's not really a return. I'm not sure. We're not sure they were really ever there uh, before in big numbers. So. When we think about humpbacks in the bay, um, we can think of going back into the 80s, Humphrey the humpback, the lost whale that went all the way up to Rio Vista. And then more recently, uh, in 2007, there was Delta and Dawn, this uh, humpback whale mother and calf that went all the way up to Sacramento. Uh, So we had uh, an experience of uh, wrong way whales, lost whales in the bay until very recently. Then all of a sudden things changed. In 2016, two summers ago, um, multiple whales started coming into San Francisco Bay to feed on anchovy there. And I was just doing my regular porpoise work on the bridge looking down, and uh, five humpback whales came right underneath me and started feeding, and I was just absolutely stunned. And so this went on. uh, We'd see this repeated behavior. They'd come into the bay over months. And then that whole scene repeated in 2017 from April till September. Humpback whales were coming into the bay um, on basically an almost daily basis. And uh, this is pretty amazing. But it's, again, all about the food. Anchovies were um, really uh, concentrating in these uh, dense shoals uh, near the bridge and all the way out towards Alcatraz. So the humpback whales have figured it out, and they've, they've now got San Francisco Bay sort of on their dining list. Now, when we think about humpback whales, when I started studying uh, whales back in the 70s, there was maybe 2,000 humpback whales in the whole North Pacific. Now there's 20,000 or more, 24,000 is what they think is the latest figure. So that's 10 times more whales, and that's what happens when you stop hunting them. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a result, we've got a lot more whales. So there's a lot more animals, a bigger population. They're looking for more places to find food, and that's probably uh, a piece of the story here is that there's a lot more of them. They're uh, more. They're curious. They've got big brains, and once they figure out a feeding area, they absolutely remember it. And we've taken photos, uh, fluke shots of some of these humpback whales, and some of the ones from 2016 are the identical ones coming back in 2017. Wonderful. And it seems like your point of view on the bridge is pretty critical to tracking these um, when you're out there studying because they are right smack in the middle of those shipping lanes, which is a real big issue right now with um, these endangered species that are in our area because of all the great food, but also... Unfortunately, the traffic is there as well, that some of them are getting hit. So I think you're a really important data source for contributing to that study. Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right, Jennifer. I mean, uh, this is the narrowest spot where ships and humpbacks 
come uh, into near contact. So the, the bridge uh, spans the gate, which is exactly one mile wide. And that's pretty narrow, because when you're considering uh, shipping lanes or out in the oceans, you're talking about miles, but you're talking about one mile maximum. And the ships have really very little room to maneuver. And the humpbacks are right out there in the middle. Now, we've never seen one, uh, fortunately, that's been uh, had a close call or been hit by a, a ship yet. But it's something we definitely want to keep an eye on. And um, I was talking to Noah recently about the fact that this area is the spot to try to study this problem. So our idea, our plan is to try to get um, uh, a theodolite, which is a surveying instrument, up on maybe one of the hills, like uh, the Hawk Hill area in the Marin Headlands, to be able to look down and track uh, single humpbacks as they maneuver around ships when they come so we can see exactly how close they're getting. The other thing that we did this last summer is I, I collaborated with a group called Cascadia Research Collective, and they actually did some suction cup tagging of whales to see how far down they're, they're going and see how they maneuver. So that's, there's a couple things we can do. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you all uh, for the work that you're doing to help all these animals, help educate others about them. Um, before we wrap it up to finish our show, I just want to give each of you the opportunity to share a website to, for people to learn more about the, your, each of your work and your organization. So, Bill, let's start with you. Yeah, sure. I would love it if uh, folks uh, could give reports about any cetaceans they're seeing. Uh, it's always of interest to us. And you can go to uh, www.ggcetacean, that's C-E-T-A-C-E-A-N, Org, and there's a report form on the website. That's right. Another citizen science opportunity. If you see a harbor porpoise or a whale, you can report it and really have that information count for science. So good, good reference on that. How about you, Jim? My film, which is on my website, is linked to Vimeo.com. Wonderful. So if you go to, uh, and you can find it either way, you can either go to my website, which is www.jimsugar.com, and, and there is a section on there that says movies. And the film is right up on top. It's at the very top. The film is uh, 9 minutes and 37 seconds long. And uh, the Vimeo, if you go to Vimeo.com, which is spelled V-I-M-E-O, fantastic website. It's a lot like YouTube, but it, it has more professional films. And, uh, and and you do a search on Jim Sugar, it'll come up. That's great. And your other films as well would be yes, able to... wonderful. I'm looking forward to seeing your other swimming film. How about you, Jessica? Um, if you'd like to see the film about my grandmother, it's on the screenings page of nanangmovie.com, spelled N as in Nancy, N-A-N-A-N-G movie.com and I'm also on LinkedIn under J-E-S-S-I-C-A S-I-S-O-N Well thank you all so much and good luck at the screening thank this you. weekend. I hope you have a lovely turnout to celebrate this Harbor Porpoise and then after the film I understand you can walk to the end of the pier and look for Harbor Porpoise. <laughs> oh, let me say Real quickly, briefly, go ahead. Briefly. I'm going to bring a pair of binoculars with me <laughs> Good idea. because I can. And if you walk out of the Cal Theater and you make two left turns and you face the Golden Gate Bridge, and if it's not a windy day, you can see, the chance of seeing harbor porpoises is very high. And I'll have a big old pair of binoculars for somebody who wants to have a look at them. Fantastic. Harbor porpoises in San Francisco Bay, thank you all for joining us today. 
still have lots to share with our remaining few minutes here on Ocean Currents. And number one is about the San Francisco Ocean Film Festival coming up this week, starting Thursday, going through Sunday, March 8th through the 11th. You can go to oceanfilmfest.org to get all the information of what films are playing when. As our guests were saying earlier, it's such an amazing event. If you like the ocean, if you love the ocean, this is the place to get re-inspired and reconnected to all the people really working to help protect the ocean and conserve it and work together with our fellow communities. Just a couple themes that I wanted to pull out. Thursday is International Women's Day. And they're having two special films. Um, the first one at 4 is called She is the Ocean. And at 7 o'clock for the opening party is Kim Swims, about a woman who swam the Golden Gate to the Farallon Islands. Incredible film. International Women's Day. And then Friday, there are some European films. And Friday evening is the surfing program. And Saturday, there are some more conservation films and the popular shark film session at 1 o'clock. And more films continuing through Sunday, including the student film competition, which is one of my favorites. The students get to come up on stage and talk about their films as well. And it's free. The student film competition is free. Each day there are different panel discussions with, uh, with different themes, and each of those are all listed on the website. So for those of you in the Bay Area listening, I really hope you'll check it out, oceanfilmfest.org, for all the information about this annual event that we just absolutely love, the San Francisco Ocean Film Festival. And again, the return of the Harbor Porpoise to San Francisco Bay will be on Saturday at 10 a.m. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month at a new time. I'm still getting used to this at 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. And you can hear past episodes through our podcast available at cordellbank.noaa.gov as well as in iTunes. And Ocean Currents has a Twitter feed. You can follow at OceanKWMR to get information about this program. And some of the links that we heard about today I will be sharing there as well so people can connect to those different resources that we heard today. Love hearing from listeners. So if you have ideas for topics, questions, comments, please email me at cordellbank at noaa.gov or tweet at OceanKWMR. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the ocean, bay, or whatever body of water you can get into safely. This has been Ocean Currents here on Community Radio for West Marin KWMR. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thanks to bensound.com for royalty-free music for the Ocean Currents podcast. For more info, visit www.bensound.com.